Welcome to The Lead, a podcast of law enforcement stories told to you by law enforcement officers. I'm Anthony Rodriguez. And I am Fatima Simichi. And together, we work for the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, Media Relations Department. Our job is to find creative ways to reach our community. And today, we'll be talking to Detective Cockburn from the Cold Case Unit. And some of you who have listened to our podcast in the past know that we cover pretty heinous cases that we haven't solved yet. And today we're going to do a little bit of a change and talk about some cold cases with our cold case detective. But these cases are particularly interesting because they are people who have been killed, but we still have not identified the victim. Welcome to The Lead. We're here with Detective Cogburn. Thanks for being here. Give us a little bit about your past here with PBSO. Yeah, good morning. I've been employed with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office for about 29 years now. I'm currently assigned to the uh, Sheriff's Cold Case Unit for homicides and unidentified and long-term missing persons. Prior to that, I was a a road patrol deputy, a uh, uh, FTO on the road. I did my first three years in corrections. Um, Prior to the Sheriff's Office, I was in the Marine Corps for six years of active duty. but um, presently, right now, my focus is on cold cases with the, uh, the sheriff's office homicides. Um, for about 14 years, um, as, while I was assigned to the homicide unit, I was uh, their unit trainer. So I organized homicide conferences for the sheriff's office, as well as trained new detectives that uh, would come into the detective bureau from our patrol division. But presently, right now, I'm, uh, my, my current assignment is for the uh, cold case homicides. We have, prob- I believe, over 350 cold case homicides. I also have on hold uh, about another 50 of the unidentified cases and probably another 75 or so of long-term missing persons cases that we're kind of managing and going through on a constant basis. Wow. So I remember uh, back in the days you used to, um, I-, I think the first time we've ever met was when you were uh, putting together this uh, homicide conference. Correct. And you did that for uh, for a couple of years, right? Yeah, I did that for about 14 years. So mm-hmm. I was assigned to the what we would call the uh, the general homicide squads. So when I was in the homicide unit, it's, uh, I'm, we're still in the homicide unit, but it's kind of broken down and we have a cold case unit of four detectives. And the homicide unit itself has three squads of, of detectives. Mm-hmm. So uh, with those squads... Um, I was in the training division, and that's where we met, and I would train the new detectives. So as I uh, progressed in my career, I went up to the uh, cold case unit from that unit. So uh, they keep the unit trainer Mm -hmm. in what we would call the hot squads, the homicide squads. You're you're working cases that are coming in currently, right right now. The active ones. Yes, so when I transitioned to the cold case squad, some other poor fellow got to inherit the training, and uh, now they're responsible for the training and doing all those things. Wow. Yeah. So what made you want to join the, uh, the cold case unit? Well, I would say the cold case unit is the challenge. These things are like uh, uh, any other homicide. They're all unique in themselves for the specifics of the case. But I would say this is going to be a challenge. This is like a puzzle. Mm. Um, you can classify some of these cases as downright mysteries, where we just may never know. But sometimes we can look at cases like puzzles, depending on the forensic evidence, you know what I mean, what we have left over. And uh, sometimes a simple knock on the door and talking to somebody can materialize into a good lead and help 
solve a case. Mm -hmm. So I would say the, the, the main focus of me wanting to do these is the challenge in itself. Mm -hmm. They're older cases. Um, some things can be lost with evidence. Um, so there's a lot of challenges, but I would say for the most part, you know, that's the biggest thing mm -hmm. that drives me. And you, you're a particularly interesting detective because you came uh, to us with the idea of um, thinking of creative new ways to get this information out through social media, through our website. Um, you are uh, very technology-based, so you right. wanted to create a, uh, a, a map where there were all the locations of all the unidentified people. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I think the focus is this. I said, for me as an investigator, what I've learned over the years, the only way to make progress on a case is to have activity on it. Um, sometimes as an investigator, you may feel like you're chasing ghosts. You're not getting anywhere. But as long as you have some kind of activity or something taking place on a case, you can get traction. And I think with these cases, especially the, uh, the, the uh, long-term unidentified, um, with the amount that we have, sometimes it just takes a little bit of social media, a little bit of something on the news, or any kind of interest on someone's behalf to spark some kind of uh, progress for the case. So what I say is we have technology today to get out there almost on a worldwide basis for these things. And... Um, you know, being a detective is an interesting job and everything like that, but it's, uh, it's, it's specialized. But I want to say there are people out there that have a different perspective, have different life experiences, and can offer some assistance. Mm -hmm. Whether it be if there's some kind of forensic expert, financial guru, an accountant or whatever, um, their life experience, a tacit knowledge that they've gotten over their lives can sometimes contribute to these cases. Um, we're limited at some of the information we can give on the cases because we don't want to jeopardize the prosecution later sometimes. But what we can give out now, I think, may spark interest and give us some direction on a lead that somebody can call in and say, hey, maybe, like, for instance, a case we're going to review later on a tattoo. What is the origin of this tattoo? Where did it come from? When we don't know because we have a blurry picture of it. So I think just little things like that may spark some kind of knowledge mm -hmm. or some kind of information that's going to give us something to pursue. Listeners to this podcast are people who are interested in uh, helping detectives like you in cold case uh, units all across the country. These web sleuths that are their uh, self-ordained uh, detectives, you know, they, they do a lot of research online, compare uh, notes, and, and um, they've actually helped a lot of people. So we want to get information out uh, to them. And using a platform like a podcast or uh, social media, we see that um, because these were, these were back in the days, they were local cases. Uh, you could probably ho hold a press conference. Uh, the local channels might cover it, put it on the newspaper. But all that information contain you know it's contained locally correct so using these platforms we can you know nationally broadcast these uh these cases have people like these web sleuths help help us or just uh you know get the attention of somebody who knows specific details about the case and that's a great that's a great point you made where a lot of this stuff kind of I, from my experience with a lot of cases what i've found is 
we've we've had two cases. I'll just go to some really quick examples to give you how this kind of webs out. So we were able to identify last year two individuals that were long-term unidentified. One was from Ohio. The other one was from South Carolina. So at the time, you don't know. All you have is unidentified human remains here. But what you're starting to see now in some of these cases, particularly here, why it's good to get the information out there, is you're finding that Florida is a very transient state. People are filtering in here because of jobs or because of tourism or whatever. And at the same time, a lot of stuff is linked to these people that are outside of the state. So what we're finding is in, in these two cases, we found out who the identity of the, the victims were in these cases. But uh, the cases really started in South Carolina or they started in Ohio and then they brought them down to Florida and they died down here. But you wouldn't know that. You know, you're just thinking maybe this is the local guy that lived around the corner or the local girl who was two but towns down the street. They were actually out-of-towners. So, so they were, they, yes, yes. so essentially these people were out-of-state people that wound up in Florida. The guy had come down here during Hurricane Andrew to do construction work because there was just a plethora of it. It was all over the place. So they came down here to take advantage of the reconstruction after Hurricane Andrew, and the girl had come down here through what we believe probably was the drug trade and a high-risk lifestyle. But either way, you can just see in examples of those two cases, it's just not central. This is, these cases, some of these cases are not central to Florida. It's not central to Palm Beach County. Um, you look at the highways and byways and um, how you, quick you can really get somewhere in an hour. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's just not central to Florida. The, the reason why they're, they've been unidentified for so long is, is a good claim to that. Correct. Because if they were locally uh, residents that lived locally, they can most likely be identified by neighbors, girlfriends, family members, uh, somebody that would you know report them missing and know that they're they've been. Well, out you're there. gonna like you mentioned before. You said like these cases, generally you're gonna get a sparked interest from the media, mm -hmm. so you're gonna get maybe thirty seconds of airtime. Hey, the sheriff's office found a body in this field. It's a woman. That's all they get. And, they, and whatever information. So like you said, if it's local and they're like, oh, Mary or Joe was missing, it kind of makes sense, mm -hmm. you know, in the beginning stages of these cases. So the media stuff is out there. But as it kind of sparks and goes out, you know what I mean? Sometimes how can the people in Ohio know? Right. But if Ohio doing these sleuth searches says, hey, this guy was talking about going to Florida the whole time. So there's a, there, there's a lot of avenues that are really good for us, and there's a lot of stuff out there. But um, connecting the dots, what I call putting the puzzle together, you have all these pieces that are sitting there in front of you. It's like a big pile of evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as you start putting the stuff together, it gives you a picture and starts giving you a perspective of these cases. Right. So I think uh, the more information we can get out that spawns out mm -hmm. to as many people to give us as many voices and as many ideas, you know, the better off we are. Right. Because as we get older, we know, you know, we sometimes we, uh, we, we haven't seen everything, we haven't done everything, and there's people out there that have a lot of good knowledge to pass on for these cases. Mm -hmm. To me, it's not harmful, yeah. right? you know. And so you came to us and, and you said, hey, I, I got all these cases mm -hmm. that uh, could, uh, could use your help. Correct. 
And so what we ended up doing was a documentary, mini, mini documentary type uh, videos. And uh, we've done a few already. Uh, and we, we called the documentary series Nameless. Yes. Because these are, you know, people who we haven't been uh, able to identify and obviously haven't been able to uh, solve who, who, who killed them. Correct. So th- these are uh, direct homicides of people who we haven't identified. So uh, the first episode of The Nameless um, was called The Blue Bin Murder. Can you tell us about that case? Yes, this this is one of my original cases. So understand, I've been in the cold case unit now a little over three and a half, four years. So for me, as a detective, this was one of my cases that I took as the original responding detective. Oh, wow. Back in 2005. So, uh, so I took th- we took this case on back in, um, in April of 2005 where um, unidentified human remains had been found. Um, it was a body of a woman that had been stuffed inside of a container, a blue container, kind of like a Tupperware container you would buy for store your kids' toys in. You could stuff enough in there. Um, so what happened was, as a cyclist was riding throughout the country, he was from England and he had been touring the United States on bike. He decided to take a little turn to go and do his camp because he would camp overnight. And he went down a little shell rock road and found the body discarded kind of in the, in the roadway. So that's where our investigation began right there. Mm -hmm. So we had a woman who was naked, wrapped in plastic and stuffed inside of this container and just discarded along the roadway. So you were, take me back to 2005. Yeah. You, you, you get called out to the scene. Correct. Um, what, do you, what do you find when you get there? So, so yeah, I'll, I'll kind of go and describe the sure. area. The area is what they call right now, the nickname is the Holy Lands. And from what I understand, they, um, the, uh, the locals called it the Holy Lands because back during World War II, Bombers used to drop bombs in these areas, and they had a bunch of craters from the bombs or something. So that was one of the little nicknames for the for the area. Wow. But it's basically right on the border of Broward County and Palm Beach County. It would be in the far western region of Palm Beach County, primarily agriculture. These are open fields of sugarcane and other crops and things like that. So it's a very isolated area. Um, there's not a whole lot out there. I think the closest thing um, to this was probably a little general store down the street, kind of like a little quick stop store with gasoline or something like that. Um, The nearest town would be South Bay, which would be north of the location. So um, this is near the it's on Highway 27, which is a route that kind of goes back through Palm Beach, Western Palm Beach County into Broward down into Miami. Got it. So, uh, or up to Tampa. So it's kind of like a, a westerly north-south route that, that, that people could take versus I-95 on the East Coast where everything is congested. So um, this area is primarily agriculture, open fields. Um, we have a, uh, I mean, I would say probably, uh, you know, the likelihood of finding her there if you're searching. I mean, she's, she was out right in the middle of the roadway. Um, so um, this little access roadway to a, a cell phone tower. Oh, okay. So it wasn't as if they were trying to conceal her right, and okay. hide her deep from the roadway or anything. It looks like maybe somebody just got off the road and said, hey, let's do it right here. And, and dumped her. And dumped her. 
Yep. So uh, what we that's when the investigation begins. So from there, we take her remains to the medical examiner's office. The medical examiner will do an autopsy. Um, we didn't need to do any further anthropology work or anything because we had a whole body, basically, right there. But the body does tell us certain things. So uh, the medical examiner ruled the death as a homicide. Um, from there, we started with fingerprints, missing persons, bulletins, flyers, throwing everything out there. We knew we were dealing with an elderly woman. Mm -hmm. um, we knew that she had uh, very limited mobility. So she may have either been on a walker or possibly on a wheelchair. Oh, wow. Um, they, uh, what age do you think she was? Well, the medical exam, it, it's kind of funny with the scientific community because they'll give you a rough estimate, but I, I would probably say she's in excess of 50 years old. Mm -hmm from my experience and looking at her remains and going to the autopsy and everything. Like I mean, that. how long had she been there? Was her body, was her body decomposed? Her body was a slightly decomposed. Yes. So there, there were some things it, it's this, this is one of those unique cases where, uh, you know, her, 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 her head was, was almost like in a mummified state, which you would call it very, very advanced decomposed, but her body was not. So we thought there was a possibility that she was, um, submerged in something and her head wasn't so it maybe may, may have preserved her but uh, either way you know they classified the death as a homicide we knew there were some other unique characteristics that she had um, she had some dental work where she had bridges that were missing and stuff like that she had a mastectomy so we knew she probably had cancer at some time and had a, had had a breast removed so um, she had uh, very distinct bunions. So that, along with the limited mobility, would probably tell you she was probably either house-ridden or needed assistance to go to the store or do anything like that. Um, but uh, what we were able to do on this case, once we uh, – the, the case is basically for these things, when we have an unidentified human remains case, once we exhaust fingerprints, once we put DNA in the system – um, to try to compare to other identifieds or people that have missing persons in the system. Once those things have been exhausted, we start to go to the genealogy route and stuff like that. And that's later on. Understand that in 2005, there, she, there was no genealogy. Mm -hmm. um, remember, in 1994 is when DNA started. Yeah. So we're kind of about the halfway point with DNA advancing. And DNA is kind of like computers. It's just getting better and better and quicker every couple years. So uh, we've kind of progressed to around 2019 or so where we were able to do genealogy on her and get some more information from her. You know what I mean? To tell us maybe what, what is her ethnic line? Where is she from? Um, what we can do with some of the genealogy, which helps us, especially with people that are really unidentified remains, it can give us the hair color. It can give us the eye color. It can give us her skin color. Um, even with her, although she was a whole body, you know what I mean, we could probably, we can get a good perspective of what her skin color would have been like if she was alive versus what the remains look like. So the remains do change as they're decomposing. So it's not going to look like unless they're very fresh. Right. So uh, we go through all these avenues. Um, I mean, she, um, she has been in the, uh, the FBI's CODIS combined DNA index system as a missing person. The unidentified remains have been in there since basically 05 or 06. And as we talked about in this podcast in the past, we've even talked to our um, forensic scientists here. Uh, CODIS is a, d a database where all the DNA from anybody who's 
you know, ever been uh, arrested or uh, any kind of murder or rape case. Yeah. So, so what? Yeah, CODIS is broken down. They have the criminal offender database. So they have people that are the, the that are classified as criminal offenders. So whatever state classifies it that way, if they're supposed to get a swab, they will go in as an offender. Mm -hmm. They have a different database of what's called the crime scene forensics. So let's say they have some blood or semen or something like or DNA that's left behind at a crime scene, but they don't know who it belongs to but they have like physical evidences left behind. They can take that physical evidence and compare that to the offender database. Mm -hmm. Then they have the separate databases for the missing and unidentified. Mm -hmm. So they have the long-term, like people that have long-term missing uh, family members, they can contribute their DNA as a family member sample. Okay. Okay. Then we can also, let's say somebody's been classified as missing. We can go back to their house and grab their brush, their razor, their toothbrush, things like that, and try to get DNA and its extraction. That would be a, a personal source sample, a sample from that person. Um, then the other thing is going to be the unidentified remains themselves. So what you have is you have the unidentified remains, samples that are circulating. You have the family samples, and then you have the, the direct source samples. In other words, we know that this person is a missing person, and we're pretty sure this is their DNA because we got it from their toothbrush, their mm. hairbrush, mm -hmm. or their razor that they used or something like that to circulate in the system. And it's my understanding that it's not a constant circulation. It's like a burst. It goes through every, every once in a while where they, they'll all search each other. But there's, you know, we haven't had a result on her yet. So, so all these databases, they, they get to cross-check each other whenever you put one in? So Yes. To some degree, yes. Okay. Yes. Yep. So if there was a um, uh, somebody who if there was an offender an offender if there was an offender that could be linked to this person and and there are so it uh, we may you know have another podcast I would probably say on um, on the crime lab and what DNA can do and especially with genealogy um, anthropology and stuff like that where we can pick their brain on that process mm -hmm. um, but I you know it's it's not necessarily really complex when you understand how kind of the circuit breakers are turned on one, two, three, four, you know what I mean? I think sometimes, uh, uh, it can seem overwhelmingly, mm -hmm. you know, complicated and stuff like that. But you, you, if you try to break it down into simple terms, I think with, with the DNA, we have the ability to do varied searches. Mm -hmm. So we can start with CODIS and where it's circulating in CODIS. But there are some things that they can do within that system search-wise, you know what I mean, that they have to do by keyboards or by other other means that are a lot, I would say, long-term and complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that you definitely need the credentials of a scientist to do. Right. And, and it just it just takes time and manpower. Right. So uh, beyond those samples that are kind of comparing to each other, there are some kind of like hand searching, you would call it, abilities mm. that the system can do um, that's a little complicated. They call them like a keyboard search or a familial search. Mm. Um, so what, what can happen sometimes is we can get an investigative lead of sorts that'll tell us, listen, there's a, a criminal offender that is linked to your unidentified person. It just looks like a relative of sort. This is a lead on your part. So you need to look at this guy named Jerry. Mm -hmm. 
because Jerry's DNA looks like he could possibly be linked to your unidentified person. Somewhere on down his family tree. His family tree. So it's not a direct link. Mm -hmm. It's not probable cause to go arrest Jerry. And it's but not, it does it's, narrow it all down. It is, is, all it is is a lead to say, hey, this is a hint. There's a chance that somewhere along Jerry's family tree, this person could lie in whatever direction that branch takes off. But right. in this particular case, did you find more than one DNA? Did you? No. All we have is her DNA. Um, mm -hmm. We pretty much exhausted the, uh, mm -hmm. the process of everything we could do with the uh, scene itself, which mm -hmm. was limited to the plastic tarp that was wrapped around her and the container she was stuffed into. Now, like you mentioned, she was pretty badly decomposed. Um, it wouldn't be, um, and, and that's, that's a main reason why we can't identify this person is because we don't know what they originally looked like. Correct. So what, as a detective, do you do or what tools do you have on your in your arsenal to uh, show the public a good idea of what she might have looked like? All right. So what we do with these cases is the, uh, once the once the case is finished at the at the autopsy, um, what we'll do is we'll try to do a reconstruction of that person's appearance. If, it, if, it's, if it's that simple. So what you see on television is we have two of our forensic imaging artists um, at the sheriff's office that, um, and there's very few of them in the world, believe it or not. And we're lucky to have two of them here at PBSO. So uh, what we'll do is we'll turn over the case um, for the imaging or the reconstruction of that person's looks, mm. what they look like. And um, they will take if there's an anthropology report from an anthropologist, they'll take the medical examiner's report. They'll take the crime scene photographs. If we have samples of their hair and things of that nature, they'll take all of that stuff, put it together. Um, there's times where we've had partial, uh, like a shirt, mm. like you'll see in one of our future cases in 1982, where we just had a partial shirt where they were able to go online and start searching and figure out, oh, this is what shirt that she wore. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Um, so what they're going to do with the, uh, with, with the forensics is they're going to take their skull and they're going to reconstruct their facial features based on that skull. And we can do two different types. We can do a reconstruction of what they look like based on that, and then we can do these age progression type mm. things. So what we can do, uh, what, or what they can do, I kind of ask them to do it, and then I get to put out the bulletin, but I don't do this. <laughs> the, these, uh, these other two... A guy and girl does it. But um, what will happen is, let's say we have a, a long-term missing person who's been now missing for 20-something years. At about the 20-year mark or more, we'll go and do an age progression. Mm -hmm. So with a long-term missing person, we know who that person is. We can go now and look at their brothers and sisters and mother and father and see how they've aged. Right. And then they can use that information. That's so interesting. So, right. so they can use those age progressions with help with the long-term unidentifieds. With the unidentified human remains, we're kind of stuck with the what we have. Mm -hmm. um, and um, sometimes, uh, you know, the characteristics of their dental and all those other things give us a pers different perspective of what we have at the scene, mm -hmm. what they look like when they were living. That's interesting because, especially about the teeth work, because what does the teeth work tells you about, for example, this particular case? Well, with, with a forensic odontologist, I mean, they can tell you, I think, um, dental work in the United States is unique to itself as well as Europe 
South America and those places. So with her, I remember at the autopsy talking to the doctor, the doctor saying, look, it looks like she has foreign DNA dental work because she had like gold fillings. Oh, we don't do the gold fillings here. So, So one of those little indicators is like, okay, who is she? Kind of tells us maybe she was born somewhere else Mm -hmm. before she made it here. So that's one little puzzle piece that Mm -hmm. goes down. Okay, she's probably not a native-born American, Mm -hmm. but where is she from? So that's when we get into the DNA and stuff like that, and they give us a a classification of maybe where she, what region of the world she she came from. So once we kind of, we get that, um, it's another lead from an investigative standpoint. I think we all know geographically people kind of, I would get in these little, they, they come into these little enclaves. Mm. So you may have like, and I know in Lake Worth here, we have a Finnish community. Mm-hmm. You have a Haitian community. Right. You have your German community. Mm-hmm. You have your Italian community. So, so sometimes, you know what I mean? Depending on how specific the DNA is, it can give us an idea or a possibility, what I would say, a ghost chase. Let's mm-hmm. go over here. Mm-hmm. Talk and, to them. And, and show and them. Talk a, to these people. Yeah. Show, show these people this or whatever. So with her, um, it, it, it's a pretty unique, uh, you know, I would say uh, they're saying southeastern Europe, which is kind of the area of Albania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, all those places mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's a chance if she's from that region of the world, um, you know, from an investigative standpoint, you have to look at, and that's where you go. The, the great part about social media and online now, we used to have to just go to the library to look at historical archives wow. or to try to figure out what was the weather like. <laughs> you know what I mean? So now we can, we can figure out, you know, hey, what was going on in the world? And everything is so fast-paced and moving quickly. You think about this woman. You know, is there a chance that she was one of these refugees from what was going on in the late 90s or mid-90s with Bosnia and those areas, Mm. Albania and those places. You know what I mean? She wound up in the United States somehow. She was elderly. Could she have been a refugee from that that conflict area? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So we know that's probably her genetic makeup Mm -hmm. where she she was kind of from. But what brought her here is the kind of the mystery. Right. But we but we but those are little puzzle pieces. Like you said, the dental's telling us something is foreign. Mm-hmm. The DNA is definitely telling us, hey, her ethnicity's tracking back here. Her ancestry's tracking back to this region. You know, what else can we do to uh identify her? But right now, you know, she's st- she's still unidentified. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been all kinds of leads that come in. Oh, have you checked the social security rolls to see if somebody's collecting her social security mm-hmm. and things yeah. like that? And and you, as as an investigator, you find out that's a different monster in itself. Mm-hmm. That it's not as a, uh, um, you know, they have their hands full. Right. And they can't sit there and there's not like a little clock on the wall that says, oh, these 300 people just turned 100 years old. Let's go knock on their door and see if they're still alive. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Welfare checks for. Uh, wow. But yeah, you yeah. hear that all the time. Yeah. So I know. So that's a big monster in itself with the millions of people that are on that, uh, you know, in SSI and everything mm-hmm. like that. I, I'm sure there's a lot of rabbit holes that you can uh, get into that, you know, you as a t- detective with so many cases on your on your uh, on your desk, uh, you have to pick and choose which is the best fruitful avenue to take. Correct. Um, for example, if you know you said she had a mastectomy, yep. uh, she could have had cancer. Correct. 
she could have had cancer anywhere. You can check. Uh, what would you do with that kind of information as a detective? Yeah, so we'll take that and we'll we'll put a bulletin together, and then we'll try to send that out. Um, back then, we sent it out to as many doctors and as many people as possible that said, "Hey, could you have possibly had a patient?" Mm-hmm. That looked you know? like this. Yeah. And I would say, with the composite sketch and the unique features that she had, you know what I mean. I would say, if if you knew her, you'd probably remember her mm-hmm. if you saw her in the bulletin as a patient, as a neighbor. Or something of that nature. So that's that's where when I decided to come to you, I'm like, the more information we get out there, we have so many different platforms, mm-hmm. you know, for from the internet in itself, just to push this out to, that hopefully we can get a hit on it. Right. So you know. she had a mastectomy and she had treatment, but Correct. then she also had hair. Correct. So, so this might have been something that she had many years. Correct. Prior. Absolutely, it could have been. But that doesn't mean that she still wasn't going to see her doctor or whatever. Right. But I think, you know what I mean? So those things tell us things. It tells us like that. Even we had the, um, we, we took whatever debris that was in her hair or surrounding her and we would, we sent that out too. Oh, wow. We try to see, you know, where, where, what are the origin of, for a botanist? So what is the origin of all the plant material? And it's all native to Florida, mm-hmm. but, um, you just never know. And if you know, I, I think, um, if you look at Florida's kind of unique because if you notice just from living in Florida, once you get to St. Lucie County for us, which is on the East coast of Florida, about midway through um, Florida, probably about what, an hour and a half from Miami. So once you get to that level of Florida, if you notice in Florida, if you travel at all, sometimes you get North of there into the Orlando area, you run into those little black love bugs yeah. that stick to your car. Right, right. If you notice, we don't get those love bugs below that St. Lucie, that tropical, wherever yeah. the tropical line That's is. True. Yeah. So for us as investigators, we're like, you know what? If she, Let's just say she didn't, but let's just say she there were love bugs inside the bucket. We would have known there's a chance it, it would have from this area. Yeah, so th- there's things we can do, and I think, um, and, and depending... If we have a body that's dumped somewhere, um, I know U.S. Customs is very, very famous for doing what they do, pollen analysis. So they'll try to take samples and swabs of the clothing to do a pollen analysis to see where that person may have been traveling oh, wow. and stuff like that. Um, there's just there, there's a lot of different avenues where we can wh- what we can do. Um, they can do this. Uh, I think it's like a chemical isotope of the teeth to tell the person where they lived and the minerals that they've been absorbing. Wow. So, you know wow. what I mean? There's a lot of things we can do, but the unfortunate circumstance is it all costs money. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, um, any of these scientific processes are not cheap. Right. It all costs money. So you have to kind of measure what you want to do or what you need to do for a case, especially that, when you have a lot of them. So that makes me wonder, do we treat cases like this differently than the ones that have families that are, you know, out there calling you? Have- I would say no. I say we work these as as fast and furious as we can. The key is, is you know, get out there and, and do as much as you can, as quick as you can. Um, at some point in time, you do run into bumps and brick walls and you get stuck. You've exhausted all avenues. Mm. You know what I mean? But I would say these cases, like for right now, this case technically is being worked now mm-hmm. we're trying to get it out there you know and draw some interest on it right. so uh but they don't it's like any other case especially the cases that are classified as homicides you know what i mean right that, that's why 
these are so special because we know somebody killed them. Yep. And um, and and we can't start investigating the homicide if we don't know who they are. Right. And if you think about it in general, I mean, uh, the unidentified remains discovery, the scope of that is telling. Somebody disposed of human remains for a reason. Mm-hmm. They're buying time. They're trying to get away with something. They're, you know, whatever, whatever the case is, there's a reason why they didn't go through the ceremonial burial and, you mm-hmm. know, all yeah. those things. So, so there's, there's a hint of, there may not be the trauma. There may not be um, uh, forensic evidence to say that it's a murder, okay, because they could have done something you know, sinister to that person. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a reason why they decided to take the remains and put them in the woods somewhere or right. in the swamp right. or somewhere like that. So that oh, so in she itself was, is... she was naked. Correct. So what does that say about the body? Well, that tells us she, they probably don't want to uh, link anything to her to sanitize the scene. You know what I mean? So they... they is there a chance that uh, her being naked means that she was bathed and cleaned and all these other things? You know what I mean? They don't want to have any clothing, any jewelry, mm-hmm. any, anything that's unique to her. So I would say that in itself tells us that somebody's trying to sanitize something or clean it up or make it as, uh, you know, they don't want us to have any leads, I would say. Obviously, this is a podcast and we yep. have uh, renderings and, and bulletins that we've put out uh, to the media. Yep. Anybody listening to this can go to our website on pbso.org and uh, they can even search for the Blue Bin murder. That's how we named this case. And they can look at all the, the latest uh, renderings from the artists that we have, the forensic artists that, that uh, so that they can you know, share with anybody in their family that may have uh, a, a relative that's been missing um and uh to help us you know bring in some some tips thank you for being here today uh detective cogburn i think um what you do is so important with the help of this podcast hopefully we can you know spark more interest and and more leads uh gives you some teeth to certainly and i encourage the public to you know look at these cases dive into them if you have some suggestions if you have some ideas um, I, I you guys have created the uh, ability for them to do so, to communicate with us and give us some, uh, you know, so we can talk about these things. Where can they reach you? For me, my email is cogburnj, C-O-G-B-U-R-N-J at pbso.org. Uh, my desk phone number is 561-688-4063. My current schedule has me working like a Tuesday or Monday to Thursdays. Um, but uh, I always have my email. Mm-hmm. So the best way to get a hold of me is by email. email. Yeah, the C-O-G-B-U-R-N-J at pbso.org. Awesome. Thank you.